HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Byrite, a family-owned and San Francisco-grown market that's passionate about creating community through food. For more information, visit buyrightmarket.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Welcome to Food Without Borders on Heritage Radio Network, a show about food, culture, and identity. I'm your host, Sari Kamen. My guest today is Christine Sahadi Whalen. She's the owner of Sahadi's in Brooklyn, a third-generation, family-owned Middle Eastern gourmet grocery store in Bulk Food Emporium in Brooklyn, New York. Welcome to the show, Christine. Thank you, Sarah. I'm delighted to be here. I am delighted to have you here. As I already mentioned to you, I'm a huge, longtime fan of Sahadi's, one of my favorite places in, I would say Brooklyn, but anywhere. Oh, thank you. I'm specifically very addicted to the pickled garlic in your <laughs> olive bar. Probably the best olive bar I've ever been to in my life. So I'm definitely a sucker for that. Perfect. Um, so tell us a little bit about Sahadi's. How did it begin? Sure. Um, well, I am third generation. My grandfather started Sahadi's um, in 1941 in down, downtown Manhattan, which is now the area that is called Little Syria. He had come over earlier and had been working with his uncle who came over in 1895 and opened a grocery store in that area. Where they worked. Did it come from? They came from Lebanon. Mm-hmm. They came from Zahli, Lebanon, and they worked together for a long time and then as partners. And then eventually they broke off and my grandfather opened a shop down the street. And then when they put the Brooklyn Battery Tunnel in, it was somewhat disruptive to the neighborhood. And he decided that he was going to move to Brooklyn. So he bought the building that we're still in right now in 1946 and he moved the shop in 1948. That's, that's been there a long time. <laughs> yeah, we've been there a long time. We're now in three storefronts, but um, but we started in one, and that storefront's still there. And the building is landmark, so it still looks pretty much the same as it did when my grandfather bought the building, which is nice. That's amazing because so much of, I mean, not just Brooklyn, but all of New York has changed. And it's, it's just so nice to know that there's still a few 
stalwarts that have remained. That's it. And how how has um, the food changed? Like, was it initially predominantly Lebanese food? Has it have you expanded in the types of offerings that you have? Without a doubt. When we started, we were a Middle Eastern grocery store. We sold um, pretty much only bulk, with the exception of some canned and packaged goods like olive oil or, um, you know, different types of beans that Middle Easterners tend to use that are already canned, like fava beans. So we probably had a 98% Middle Eastern clientele, and almost everything was bulk. Um, everything from Middle Eastern cheeses to breads to pastries. Some we made, in a lot we made in-house, um, and almost everything, if it wasn't made in-house, was packaged in-house because Middle Eastern food was not prevalent then, and we brought it by container from Lebanon on a boat. And then when it got here, we either sliced it or sorted it or jarred it or whatever needed to be done to, you know, to package it for, for sale. Um, or we sold it loose. As in the case of olives and cheese, we just sold them loose. And um, But we definitely had a very big Middle Eastern clientele, uh, you know, it wasn't the kind of food that was typical for the American customers to eat. But as the neighborhood changed and certainly as the palates have changed here and as people became more global and worldly, you know, there's a lot of interest in over the last, well, certainly since the time of my grandfather, there's been a drastic change in the neighborhood as well as in people. People are more well-traveled now. I mean, air travel is so much cheaper that, you know, people know different foods and they want to experience them when they come back to their home. And our clientele now is who's in our neighborhood, which is a fabulous, diverse group of, um, you know, really interested food people, which is a lot of fun to market to. But um, so I would say maybe in the 70s, we started to add other offerings, different types of oils and vinegars and things that were not predominantly Middle Eastern, but of course, as the Middle Easterners were here a generation or so, the kids were also exposed to a lot of different things. So, um, And then in 86, we took over the second store and we added our deli and our cheese department um, where, you know, all the items are handmade every day in the deli. It's it's skewed Middle Eastern, but it's definitely not only Middle Eastern. We, we try to use a, a wide variety of grains, whole grains and beans and stuff to make a, you know, a to make a, a nice menu daily. We, we run about 300 items, um, you know, in a rotating schedule. So, uh, but a lot of them at heart are using Middle Eastern ingredients, just in, in some in different ways. And, you know, but the clientele's really been very welcoming to, to new and different things. So we've been able to really add new departments organically based on what the customers have asked for, which is really terrific. Yeah. Did it, was there ever like a precarious moment in time where it felt like so many of the, um, the Middle Eastern neighborhood people were leaving, but like the shift hadn't happened yet where people weren't quite as interested in eating different types of foods as they are now? I think um, we've been very lucky that in Brooklyn Heights, it is a very well-traveled group. So while that may definitely have been the case um, citywide or nationwide, we're very lucky that the neighborhood is just very, very diverse downtown, and they really are open to trying different things. And we're we're good listeners. If yeah. we see somebody, you know, the, if we feel a shift, we try to adapt quickly to accommodate the neighborhood. I mean, these are these are our neighbors and our friends and our customers, and they want us to provide what they want as much as we want to provide what they want. So. Um, you know, I think that it's been a really, we have a very good relationship with our customers and I think that that's helped to mitigate some yeah. of that for us. Mm-hmm, that makes sense. And then also I would say Sahadi's is not just 
I mean, it's a neighborhood grocery, but it's also like a, de- a destination. You know, I know people, I don't live in that particular neighborhood anymore. I used to, but I will still, you know, make the time to go there. We hope so. I mean, we like to be, we want people to come and not to have a two minute, you know, come and get a container of milk and leave. Well, they certainly are welcome to do that. We want people to have an experience. We want you to come in. We want you to have a sample. We want you to learn something new. We want you to ask questions and linger at the bakery while he's making the Zata breads. I mean, that's part of what we do is, you know, is we're really part of the neighborhood. So people will come and spend an hour sometimes. They'll get a cup of coffee. You know, that's all part of what we want to be for the community and for the, the, the customer base at large. Yeah. There's so many foods that I think I tried for the first time at Sahadi's. I mean, certainly that pickled garlic, which is it's just so incredibly delicious. Like, it's one of those things you just have to taste it because no one... You, you can't picture what pickled garlic tastes like. It's hard to imagine. But the spicy dried mango, there's just so many delicious things there. Um, I'll stop because I'm gushing. <laughs> How long have you personally been involved? I've been working full time 32 years. So um, I started midway through college at full time. Um, I did some culinary studies um, at IC, not a full program, but just enough to make me comfortable with large-scale cooking. I mean, we come from a Lebanese family. We cook. We're very hospitable. We are always entertaining. So it wasn't that much of a reach for me to, to you know, to start during college. And then I finished my uh, my studies at NYU in, in finance, which at the time there was no food studies program, which is kind of a bummer because there are a lot of really great programs today. But, um, you know, it, it was a good fit for us, uh, a finance and international degree, because we do a lot of international business. We do a lot of our own sourcing. We do a lot of our own buying. So, um, you know, I felt that would be a, a good fit. So I've been working full time. This is the 32nd year. Wow. And how do you decide, I mean, other than like listening to the neighbors, um, how do you decide like in terms of what brands you use and, and as far as like the products that you're bringing in and you're shipping in from the Middle East, how do you go about choosing what you decide to carry? Our warehouse is really particular. The all the importing and the uh, the importing and the distribution goes through the warehouse, which is um, my husband does most of the importing, and him and my bro- my brother work on the distribution as well as my brother works with me at the shop. So a lot of our importing is based on their gut saying that they want to have exclusives. So almost all of my big items, items I bring containers of, are items that have to come through me hmm. or or one of my partners in in the United States. We don't. I mean, if we're going to sell the same items, the same six items as everybody else, there's really no reason to come to me. So we try to develop really great partnerships with suppliers overseas. I mean, my two olive oil suppliers, both in Lebanon, that I bring containers from. Um, one of them is fairly new. He's got a infused line, which is beautiful. My other olive oil supplier we've been buying from since I was a child. And I know his father. Um, I know his wife. It's that kind of relationship. And a lot of our suppliers are like that. I mean, our fig, we've been buying from our fig farm in Turkey for 30 years. So they have a sense of what kind of quality we're expecting. They have a sense of how we'd like it shipped or packaged or, you know, for minimal damage or, you know, or best preservation. And we have really great relationships with those people. And I think that's made a big difference. We have family in Lebanon that does our small sourcing. Yeah, I was going to ask, do you have people on the ground there? We have people on the ground everywhere. We either have Mm -hmm. a long-standing relationship with a broker or you have to, to know what you're going to get. I mean, they put it in a container. It gets here in, you know, six weeks. You want to make sure that it's what you wanted before it was packed. But um, we do have family in Lebanon. Um, We have our cousin, and he... If it's a big container and it's coming direct, like from the olive oil guy, it just comes direct. But if it's a smaller container and there's 
two or three manufacturers sharing a container, he will often go place to place and make sure that what we're receiving is what our expectations are. And um, and he also negotiates for us if we, um, you know, are looking for something new, he might send samples from two or three different purveyors. It's hard to source when you're this far away if you yeah. don't have somebody there. And Lebanon is, is a lot of very small manufacturers still. Mm-hmm. So they might not, it's not, they, they're not all on the web sending, you know, samples out. Sometimes you need to be on the ground hearing what people are saying and just seeing the products. Do you ever go over yourself to try products? Normally they come to us. We went over for a family wedding. His daughter got married uh, three years ago and it was it was an amazing trip. We were met by suppliers. We, When we got there and we spent days in factories and just seeing different things and it was it was a wonderful experience. It was great to see the products and to see the apricots on the trees before they make stuff, as opposed to the way we're usually seeing it, which is just photos. It was really was a fabulous trip, and I was really glad that we had gone. Yeah, um, there was a really great article in a far in a far magazine not too long ago talking about how Middle Eastern politics can affect your sourcing and your supply chains, and I was wondering if you could just speak to that like how have different events that have taken place like for example I know the Syrian war came up um, how do different things that have that take place and make things very unstable in the Middle East affect your sourcing you know when you're in the Middle East food business you and you're in it you're a Middle East importer you expect a certain amount of turmoil simply because the political situation in the Middle East has been somewhat unstable in one country or another for a really long time. So there's a certain amount of instability that is accepted, but like the situation in Syria, there are items that were only coming from Syria. And when we were unable to get our dried apricot sheets and our Aleppo pepper, we thankfully had enough, you could see the situation getting worse and worse. And we started trying to source um, right away from other areas. I mean, Aleppo pepper is grown in Aleppo, so clearly that was going to be a problem. But farmers there are very resilient. I mean, they have families to feed, and they all want to make products for export. So uh, the border is close to Aleppo, the border to Turkey, and several of the farmers, when they left, moved over into the over into Turkey, and right away started, you know, growing. And it took a long time. It took a full season and many, many samples until we could get a product that was equivalent because, of course, the water is different, the land is different, until we got something that we were comfortable with, even though it was the same seeds. And I personally think the product we ended up with was just as good as the product we started out with. But it was, was difficult for the farmers, and it took a lot of a lot of DHL packages going back and forth until mm-hmm. we could see, with us sending them what we had been using and then sending us different grades, different grinds. Um, but I think people worldwide are resilient, and they make it work. Um, you know, the apricot paste took even longer. I mean, it took another year after that to get one from Turkey that was the equivalent of what we were buying from Damascus. But... Uh, you know, you don't know how long it's going to be until regular exports leave Damascus if they're going to it or for how long. And so you have to you have to make do. And is there anything coming from Syria at this point? You know, if you had asked me that a month ago, I would have told you definitely not. But I went to the food show in Germany last month and they had a booth of, of stuff that I was shocked. I took photos. Yeah. I was there with my husband and my husband said I, he hadn't seen um, nobody had really offered us anything. And to bring our own container, you have to bring, it's a 40-foot container, you have to bring a lot. 
But I was really interested to see, and we did speak with a few people there, and we left a few business cards, and you just never know. I mean, I'd be delighted, but um, I was really surprised simply because you never see, we haven't seen anything here in, whoa, quite a, quite a long time. I mean, people have other things to worry about besides export. So, um, but it was really interesting. I mean, different areas of the world, they make it work. I mean, another really great example is pistachios. We buy pistachios from California and we buy pistachios from Turkey. We, we bring direct from either one. And Turkey, the pistachio tends to be a long, thin pistachio. Well, traditionally, the pistachio they eat in Lebanon is an Iranian pistachio. It, it was a round, wide open pistachio. It looks more like a California, but it roasts more like a Turkish. And we roast our own here in Brooklyn, so we know exactly what we want them to be like. And we weren't able to find a replacement. Turkey is now growing a replacement round, after what? A replacement for Iranian pistachios after the, um, the Iran Contra scandal, the arms scandal, and the the hostage crisis. Oh, wow. They the we imposed a very high duty on Iranian pistachios. I mean, you could buy them, I think, but I have never seen them ever since them in this country since the seventies. There just are no more Iranian pistachios. And you, you see them when you travel anywhere else in the world, but you don't see them in, in the U.S. at all. That is so, I mean, this is what blew me away by, from the article that I read that um, Rachel Tepper wrote, and she did such a great job. Like, I had never connected those dots. Like, I'd never thought about how these events, like the Iranian hostage crisis, could affect a pistachio in the United States. Like, it had never occurred to me to think about that trajectory. But it's also, I mean, it's 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 so obvious, like, when you explain it like that. Politics are very much connected to what the government in both countries does. And well, right. What, what and especially they, now that we're talking about, you know, NAFTA so much over here, like... It, there's a lot of there's yeah. a lot of behind the scenes that behind you can't scenes, control right. as an mm-hmm. importer and that you can't control as a consumer. So, you know, you do the best you can. I mean, Turkey took a long time to well, they had other varieties of nuts, but the nut that is most like what I consider the Iranian style that's coming in right now is a really a really nice nut. I mean, will it replace it forever? I don't know. I guess it depends on once again the political situation between the United States and Iran. Um, which I don't know enough about to speak to, but you know I don't know anything about the reason for the duties imposed or what have you. But I, like I said, people are resilient, and when people want something, there's usually somebody else that will try to produce a, a very similar product. Yeah, I mean, would you? I mean, it's so great, like you said, the that there was um, food represented from Syria when you went to that show in Germany. But like, wouldn't? And I'm sure you would want to support them, but wouldn't you also be apprehensive? Like, you couldn't rely on on that. Very few Middle Eastern importers can rely on anything, in <laughs> okay. truth. Like, you know yeah. what I mean? So, so if I was lucky enough to get something and I thought it was a fabulous product, I wouldn't worry so much about if there was going to be a lack of that product one day. I would just be more thinking, right. this is a really great container. Let's go with it. Let's see what the feedback is like. Um, and then take it from there. Because just like how you know, seasonal products are gone for some months of the year. If there are some months of the year that you can't import something, I think that people are more excited about the availability of it when it's available. So, yeah, I definitely would. If I saw, I mean, I saw some beautiful pastry there, and if they contact me and they can get it out, I won't do the import because I think it's a really difficult import today. There's a lot of risk. But if they're willing to export it, it, it's it's great to support these families that really can use the the support and it was there were some really nice products and it's nice to have unique items from our heritage yeah you know if we can 
So the pepper that you spoke about, what was the Aleppo pepper from Syria, but now comes from Turkey? Is it called an Aleppo pepper? Or does it have a different name? Yes, we label it Aleppo pepper because it's a, it's an Aleppo pepper seed. Okay. And it grows from the original seeds, you know, from Aleppo. It's really close. The, the, it's not like it's that far uh, geographically away. It's just that it's something that was always grown in Aleppo, but it's not looking like Aleppo is going to be worried about farming in the next, you know, certainly the next few seasons. And this pepper is used in a lot of cuisines. I mean, yeah. it's it's not only used in Syrian cuisine, it's used in a lot of cuisines. And it's a really unique you know, bright red pepper with a toasty kind of flavor. And they did a really great job of adapting the soil and the water and whatever else they were doing for the farming to to really create something that was virtually identical. It, it took, like I said, it did take a while, but um, the farmers were Syrian who were first putting in the seed. They yeah. knew what they they knew what they were looking for. And um, and and they they succeeded, which is great. And, you know, there's not like a DOC that you're up against. It's not like camembert that has to be made in camembert or like champagne that has to come from champagne. Exactly. I mean, you're talking about pretty much apples to apples with the exception of the fact that the geographics are not 100% the same. But for that matter, they may never, it may be a year, it may be five years. So I guess the farmers figured they had to make it work somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. Good for them for being so resilient. Um, has any have any of your supply chains been affected by policy coming from the United States, like the travel ban that's sort of in place at this point? Is there anything from this end that's that's disrupted? I'm not really because the only time something like that normally would happen would be if the United States put something in place like they did with the embargo on Iranian pistachios. If the United States doesn't want to do business with somebody, then or, or for, lack, for whatever reason doesn't feel that we're being treated fairly, so decides to, to put in something like that into place, you don't really have a lot of choices. But for the most part, most of the items that come from the Middle East are more likely to be disrupted by an inability to get them than they are by anything that we're specifically putting in place because we don't have any non-trade, as far as I know, uh, with any of the other items we sell. Mm-hmm. So it's been we've been lucky enough that that hasn't been so much, um, you know, the case. Has there been any positive effect um, on people coming in more interested in what you're selling because there's been this sort of uh, awareness and anti-immigrant sentiment happening in the United States? People want to, you know, go out and be supportive of producers and farmers and just general like have a have a curiosity and a need to kind of support. That's an interesting question. We try to do business where we can with small with small farmers or co-ops. Like one of the new things we're sourcing is like a co-op. I think that that resonates with people here to begin with to support the local smaller purveyors. So I think and I think that food from conflict regions has been a, a topic this year because there has been a lot of conflict and because some people's supply chains have been more affected even than ours has. So I think that it's on the forefront of people's minds. But I think that, in all honesty, I think that American people really feel strongly about supporting these smaller organizations. So this being a, a topical a topic for conversation today and with the addition of, of knowing that we're really trying to go with, you know, cooperatives as opposed to a, a larger thing makes it an interesting story for people. It gives people a reason to try it. And, I mean, Middle Eastern food has been, for quite a while now, has been, you know, 
just everywhere. It's something that you know people really enjoy. It's a very healthy cuisine. But it's also nice to see that people can look at the jar and see the story behind it, that it's a woman's cooperative or that, you know, it's a small farm, a small batch farmers. I think that that's, that's something that resonates with people, whether they're from here or from somewhere else. So it's just all around good. Yeah. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back to talk more with Christine about Sahadi's. For understanding when you are away, can't use my heart to think away the time. In my room, I will await you, and so soon I will relate you and tie your finger right on up to mine. Byright is a family owned and San Francisco grown market that's passionate about creating community through food. From organic farm direct local produce, sustainably raised meats and artisan cheeses, to food-friendly wines, house-made foods, and dinners, Byright is an essential San Francisco destination for any food lover or cook. And no trip is complete without a visit to the renowned Byright Creamery and Bake Shop for a scoop of salted caramel ice cream. Now celebrating 75 years in the Mission District of San Francisco, visit ByWrightMarket.com to learn more. Byright is a proud business member of Heritage Radio Network, supporting good food media from coast to coast. Hey, you're listening to Food Without Borders on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Sari Kamen, and I've been in studio speaking with my gra- my guest, Christine Whalen. She's the owner of Sahadi's in Brooklyn. Um, so Sahadi's won the James Beard Foundation's American classic award in 2017 so congratulations thank you were you surprised shocked really <laughs> Comple- they didn't want us they sent an email and you just got an email <laughs> my brother didn't know what it was so he didn't answer it right away oh funny it's like spam <laughs> it was kind of like in the in the you know not in the regular email rotation and then when he saw it he called me and he said do you think we could have won a James Beard Award? And I said, um, I, I, I don't know. You were like, who this? <laughs> I mean, I was shocked. But um, but he, he emailed them back, and it was, it just, it's just been, it's been an amazing ride. I, the James Beard Award was really, is really, I mean, just the company, just to be part of that conversation was beyond flattering. Yeah. And my brother, I, my husband, and his wife went to, um, and my brother's wife went to Chicago for the awards. And uh, it was just amazing. It was amazing to just be part of the whole you know the whole thing they they're an amazing organization it was just a there's, there's no higher honor in the food world it, it just it felt it felt great I mean it just felt like you know you work you never expect to be recognized on the national stage and it was I'm still shocked about it all these months later what do you think your your grandfather would say if he was around to, to speak to that I have no idea. I mean, even my father was like, we won a James Beard Award. It's just not. Well, they don't normally give it to shops. This was the first year that it was given to shops. So I guess it wasn't on my radar as something that would have even have been. Not that I would have thought it anyway. But um, it was really uh, it was just it's just something that you just it was. It it felt really great, though, was the culmination of everything that we do. I mean, we we really love what we do. We don't do it because we have to. We do it because we want to. And it just felt great. It, it felt great to be in such great company. It felt great to be there. And it was, so, it was so flattering when people came over and they knew who we were. And the whole thing was just... Yeah, were there, were there any chefs who 
you know, talk to you about the shop that you were like, how did, how do you even know us? It was just so surreal. The whole experience walking through there and, and you, you were talking to people and then you left and you were two minutes later, you were like, I know who that was. Yeah. It was really, it was, it was great. It was just, it was just an amazing experience. It was a great feeling. It was, it really, it speaks to me about how our customer base, how, how incredible encouraging our customer bases. I mean, I love our customers. I, I love what I do for that reason alone. But, um, you know, so many of the customers came in and they could not have been more flattering. And, you know, that, of course, that all of my customers are really involved in the food world. So a lot of them were the next day after it came out, they were calling. They and it, yeah. it was great. It was just, it was, there was just nothing you could say about it except what a great experience it was and how grateful we were to be, to be part of that conversation with so many highly esteemed restaurants and, and food writers and, you know, people of that. Yeah. Has anything changed since winning the award? We've definitely gotten more traction on a national stage because you just do. Um, we do. My brother's it does his his one of his big things he does with us is web sales, and it's definitely helped in that area. It's it's changed the dynamics a little bit. How much more focus is now on uh, shipping and website and stuff like that a little bit because people from you know far and wide came to us for stuff that that maybe we weren't on their radar before. Yeah, I was going to say, is it is it easier for you to, to procure hard-to-get items? <laughs> you know, it's interesting. We do a lot of local items, a lot of Brooklyn items, um, and a lot of local made. And I think after the award, people from further out mm-hmm. started coming to us and realizing that, you know, that they could have a place on the shelf if, 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 the pro- if we love the product. And yeah. it was can interesting. Can you be more discerning? And you, you and you really can you really get to see a more broad selection of items. I mean, I, I love my Brooklyn purveyors. We've got tons of them on the shelf. I mean, they're great, and they have always these really interesting items. But like people now are calling me from Texas. I've got this really interesting item. So you know, it's always nice to see what's out there. It's always nice to see what's available. Sometimes you pick it up. Sometimes you don't. You know, but right. it is. It's really nice that they know they can get it on the shelf of the store without too much hassle. And it's nice for me to know that I've got this wide variety of of products that I can curate from. Yeah. Do you find that you're you're doing more media? Oh yeah. <laughs> Definitely more media. Um more I mean blogs call um more um radio shows. Radio, exactly. <laughs> radio. I mean sometimes we do, you know, uh, t- TV, whatever. It media is great because it it helps to get our it helps to widen our reach. And um you know, you buy from us once, we're hoping you're going to buy from us many more times down the road. Yeah. So you've already won this award. I mean, that's a pretty big bucket list item to check off. Anything else on the horizon for you? Well, we've got the cookbook coming out um, next year, which we're hoping is going to be great. Um, We are working on some new concepts that we're hoping for 2018 will be ready to announce, you know, what we're doing next. But we are definitely working on some new concepts you know, things that, uh, that we might not have done in the past. So we're hoping that, I mean, we've never had another shop and we are considering it. So it's something that, um, that might be, you know, might be for down the road. Yeah. Can you tell us a little more about the cookbook? Yeah, sure. Um, well the cookbook kind of grew organically from a customer who is a a great, a great friend and a customer who's an author. And she came to me and said, you know, I've been shopping here for a really long time. Her name is Julie Shelfo. She's a great, she's just, she wrote, um, the woman that made New York and um, this is going to be her second book with me. And, um, you know, she did the other one which she had done right before we started on this project. So she's been great. She's been months and months of interviews. 
and um, we gave her oh maybe 300 recipes that we have that we rotate through in the store and out of those she chose what she wanted and then she came to me and said these are this is what I think you're missing and can you develop recipes for me so I spent the last two months developing recipes to fill the gaps in the book of things that for whatever reason we don't do in the store and um, actually that was a lot of fun I think my family thoroughly enjoyed yeah. the results of that but um, so now now it's just a question of you know getting getting the, the proposal out there and really it's it's going to be real blending she's doing a real good job blending um, family history and um, this Saudi story with um, more current some old recipes, some new recipes, yeah. um, and some other um, people's memories of the store. That's such a great concept. Yeah, I'm hoping. I mean, she's great, and I I, lo- I love her work. So I'm hoping that um, that between you know the recipes we've given her and so much time we've spent together, that she's got a really great feel for us mm-hmm. and for me. And hopefully, um, it's going to reflect that in the book. I'm excited about it. Yeah, me too. Um, great. So I'm sure most people listening are are familiar and know where to find Sahadi's, but just tell us like where you are on the web and if you're on Twitter or Instagram or any of those places. Absolutely. Um, we're everywhere. We're at Sahadi's on Instagram, Twitter, um, Facebook, and we are www.sahadis.com for online sales. And, um, and we're on Atlantic Avenue. If anybody's in Brooklyn, we love to see, you know, we love to see new faces. Great. Christine, thank you so much. It was a pleasure talking to you and learning so much about the behind the scenes and the sourcing is so fascinating. Thank you. It was great to be here and I appreciate you calling. Thanks for listening to Food Without Borders. We'll see you next week, Wednesdays at 7 p.m. on heritageradionetwork.org. listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.